it's my great pleasure to reintroduce uh, Dr. Langford again. Uh, she's given a couple of talks already, um, but uh, she again got did her residency at um, University of South Carolina, and then um, did her um, MFM and anesthesia critical care fellowships here at University of Maryland. Um, she currently attends an obstetric care unit as well as our cardiac surgery ICU. Um, I really don't know anyone else who's more qualified to give this talk, and I. I personally know that when uh, we worked together closely during COVID, we had all our pregnant uh, patients that were intubated. Uh, my personal level of anxiety went down when Dr. Lanford walked into the unit. So um, excited to do this talk and uh, take it away. Well, thank you so much. And um, thanks for having me today to talk about kind of something that's certainly near and dear to my heart um, that we deal with on a daily basis and trying to kind of incorporate the critical care aspect of it as well. So um, we're going to discuss hypertensive disorders of pregnancy today, um, primarily with a focus on preeclampsia with severe features and eclampsia. Um, but we'll kind of go over the entire spectrum of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Um, so just a quick note, um, before we get started, um, I just want to comment that throughout the presentation, uh, the terms mother or maternal or she or her are used in reference to the birthing person. Um, I recognize that not all birthing people identify as mothers or identify as women, um, but all birthing people are equally deserving of patient-centered care that helps them attain their full potential and live an authentic, um, healthy life. So our learning objectives today, um, first, we're going to um, understand the impact of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, which will sort of be abbreviated as HDP throughout the presentation, um, on maternal morbidity and mortality. Uh, define terminology and understand the updated diagnostic criteria for hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Describe the pathophysiology and the management guidelines for hypertensive disorders. Um, identify adverse maternal neurologic, cardiovascular, pulmonary, and hematologic outcomes associated with preeclampsia that often require critical care interventions and discuss the long-term cardiovascular risks associated with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So maternal mortality in the United States, as we know, is increasing, and the maternal mortality rate in 2020 was 23.8 deaths per 100,000 live births, compared to a rate of 20.1 deaths per 100,000 live births in 2019. Most notable are the differences in maternal mortality among race. And in 2020, the maternal mortality rate for non-Hispanic Black women was 55.3 per 100,000 live births, which is 2.9 times the rate for non-Hispanic white women. In addition, the maternal mortality rate increases with increasing maternal age. So for women who are 40 and older, the maternal mortality rate was 107.9 deaths per 100,000 live births, which is eight times higher than the maternal mortality rate for women under age 25. So cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of pregnancy-related mortality in the United States, accounting for 28% of deaths in 2018. On the other hand, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy are the leading cause of maternal morbidity and mortality worldwide. Additional leading causes of or pregnancy-related mortality in the United States include sepsis or infection, hemorrhage, thromboembolic disease, or hypertensive disorders. Other causes make up a spectrum of underlying medical conditions, including epilepsy, diabetes, liver disease, respiratory complications, lupus, and other autoimmune conditions. So as I discussed, our primary focus today is going to be on preeclampsia and eclampsia, but hypertensive disorders in pregnancy include an entire spectrum of disorders, including gestational hypertension, chronic hypertension, preeclampsia, and eclampsia. It also includes several other um, associated conditions, including atypical preeclampsia, which we'll certainly talk about, chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia, 
um, PRESS or posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, which we will talk about at the end of the presentation, and reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome. So just a quick note about chronic hypertension and gestational hypertension. Um, chronic hypertension is hypertension that is diagnosed prior to pregnancy or before 20 weeks gestation. And I will say that we are still using the cutoff of a systolic blood pressure of 140 um, or a diastolic blood pressure greater than 90 as diagnostic criteria, at least when we're diagnosing either chronic hypertension prior to 28 weeks gestational hypertension after 20 weeks or preeclampsia after 20 weeks. Um, the kind of obstetric societies have not quite yet adapted um, or adopted the new ACC or AHA diagnostic criteria for hypertension. And then gestational hypertension is just hypertension that is diagnosed after 20 weeks of gestation and in the absence of proteinuria or in the absence of any evidence of end organ dysfunction. So what are the diagnostic criteria for preeclampsia? Um, so this is just, again, preeclampsia. There will be, um, the next slide will go over kind of how do we diagnose preeclampsia with severe features. But preeclampsia alone is defined as a systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 140 or a diastolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 90 on two occasions, at least four hours apart, and after 20 weeks gestation in a patient with previously normal blood pressures, or a patient that has a systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 160 or diastolic blood pressure greater than 110, ideally on two occasions, greater than four hours apart. But oftentimes we make this diagnosis um, in a much shorter interval in order to expedite therapy. And so you can have blood pressure and proteinuria. If you don't have proteinuria, there's an additional set of diagnostic criteria that we will go over. But that is different, just to note from previous um, uh, diagnostic criteria, you used to always have to have preeclampsia or proteinuria for the diagnosis. You no longer have to have proteinuria. So if someone does have proteinuria, the um, criteria include 300 milligrams or more on a 24-hour urine collection. A protein-creatinine ratio of greater than 0.3, which is often what we use as our standard. Or if you don't have either of those diagnostic tools, if you're in the outpatient setting, we can use a dipstick reading greater than 2+. And again, if you do not have proteinuria, then you have to have one of the additional next set of criteria in order to meet um, the definition of preeclampsia. And again, this is looking at markers of end organ dysfunction. So you're looking at thrombocytopenia with a platelet count less than 100,000, renal insufficiency with a serum creatinine greater than 1.1, or a doubling of the, serum of the patient's baseline serum creatinine, impaired liver function, so elevated AST and ALT, greater than twice the upper limit of normal, pulmonary edema, or a new onset headache that is unresponsive to medications and is not accounted for by an alternative diagnosis. So again, how do we differentiate preeclampsia without severe features or preeclampsia with severe features? And I think the nomenclature was one of the hardest things for us to kind of get on board with because we used to use the term severe preeclampsia or mild preeclampsia, and we don't do that anymore. It's just with or without severe features. So in order to make that diagnosis of preeclampsia with severe features, um, the patient meets the following. So they have to have a systolic um, bl blood pressure greater than or equal to 160 or diastolic greater than 110 on two or more occasions, uh, on two occasions more than four hours apart, thrombocytopenia with a platelet count less than 100,000, renal insufficiency, same as before with a creatinine greater than 1.1 or doubling of the patient's baseline, impaired liver function tests, twice the upper limit of normal, severe persistent right upper quadrant or epigastric pain that also cannot be accounted for for any other reason, pulmonary edema or new onset headache unresponsive to medications not accounted for by an alternative diagnosis or visual disturbances. So the list in order to diagnose someone with preeclampsia with severe features is much longer than it was previously. So some of the risk factors for preeclampsia, I would say the most notable ones that you should be aware of um, include a prior history of preeclampsia.
preeclampsia, chronic hypertension, obesity, um, and things like chronic kidney disease. Those are going to be the biggest players in terms of their risk for preeclampsia. Um, additional risks include multifetal gestation. So when you're looking at your twins, your triplet gestations, pregestational diabetes, your type 1 and type 2 diabetics, lupus, antiphospholipid syndrome, obstructive sleep apnea. Pregnancies affected by trisomy 13 are at really high risk for preeclampsia. Um, maternal age, so age greater than 35, is a is a well-known risk factor. And chronic kidney, or we said chronic kidney disease, but assisted reproductive technology, such as IVF. This expanded list of risk factors um, that's noted in the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists um, Practice Bulletin it is really important to kind of heighten the um, awareness about patients that are at greatest risk for developing preeclampsia. So all birthing people, kind of regardless of risk, actually should be educated about preeclampsia and the signs and symptoms and when to seek evaluation. And I think greater clinician awareness should aid in the earlier detection of this condition and the initiation of prompt medical therapy to reduce adverse perinatal outcomes. So 40% of patients with new onset hypertension or new onset proteinuria during the pregnancy will develop preeclampsia. So just a quick note about the pathophysiology about preeclampsia, um, which this is kind of where a lot of uh, my research when I was a fellow kind of focused on was spiral artery remodeling and the evaluation of the spiral arteries, whether it's with, um, we're looking at biomarkers in the first trimester or with ultrasound in the first and second trimester. So during normal pregnancy, the placenta and uterine bed, the sorry, placental bed and uterine circulation undergo um, dramatic vascularization to enable circulation between the mother and the fetus. The physiologic conversion of the maternal spiral arteries is key to a successful human pregnancy. So normal placentation in a human re requires extravillous cytotrophoblastic invasion into the inner third of the myometrium. Um, which allows for this physiologic transformation of the smooth muscle. This physiologic transformation of the spiral arteries transforms these really thick muscular um, vessels measuring 15 to 20 millimeters into very dilated, low resistance, high conductance vessels measuring 300 to 500 millimeters. The incorporation of the trophoblast into the spiral arterial wall results in the loss of the smooth muscle and the elastic lamina from the muscle, which prevents vasoconstriction and facilitates vasodilation. This process results in increased delivery of maternal blood flow and into a low-resistance placental bed. We know that abnormal spiral artery remodeling, as seen kind of on the right side of the screen with these um, high resistance vessels that are prone to vasoconstriction can lead to hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, fetal growth restriction, preterm delivery, and fetal death. This is a schematic representation of the effects of spiral artery conversion on the inflow of maternal blood into the intervillous um, space in remodeled spiral arteries on the left and pathologic spiral arteries on the right. On the left, there is dilation of the distal segment of the spiral artery, which is reduces the velocity of incoming blood and facilitates the even distribution of blood through the villus tree. With pathologic spiral artery remodeling, there's little to no dilation of the spiral arteries, and the maternal blood flow enters the intervillous space at a higher velocity with turbulent flow. There's une uneven distribution of flow, and you have rupturing of these anchor, anchoring villi, and you get ischemic placental disease. In addition, kind of the retention of smooth muscle cells in the spiral arteries increases the risk of vasoconstriction and potentiates this ischemia reperfusion injury. And also the impaired trophoblastic invasion into the smooth muscle leads to chronic hypo placental hypoxia and stress, which then results in increase in circulating anti-angiogenic factors. So not only do you have the impaired spiral artery remodeling that acts as a um, 
in the pathophysiology of um, preeclampsia and hypertensive disorders, but you get resulting chronic uteroplacental hypoxia, ischemia, stress, and then you get this imbalance of pro-angiogenic factors and anti-angiogenic factors with an increase in the circulating concentration of these anti-angiogenic factors, such as SFLT and soluble endoglin which we can actually look for as biomarkers in the first trimester. Um, the imbalance of pro-angiogenic and anti-angiogenic factors in the circulation is thought to trigger the onset of preeclampsia by inducing a microangiopathy in the targeting or in the targeted organs, such as the kidney, the liver, and the brain. Delivery of the placenta has been shown to resolve the acute clinical symptoms of preeclampsia suggesting that the placenta plays a central role in the pathogenesis of preeclampsia, but not the only role because we do know that patients can develop preeclampsia postpartum. So circulating angiogenic factors measured during the third trimester have been implicated in the immediate postpartum hypertension as well as peripartum morbidity. In patients with preeclampsia, there is an evidence of subclinical cardiac dysfunction so shown by changes in global longitudinal strain on echocardiography. Preeclampsia has been identified as a risk factor for peripartum cardiomyopathy. And using animal and um, human models um, with peripartum cardiomyopathy, excess SFLT um, seen late in pregnancy has been linked to a key link between the excess risk of peripartum cardiomyopathy and preeclampsia. The effects of preeclampsia on the fetus and the neonate are numerous, as would be expected in a, a condition where you have this placental ischemia, and hypoxia. And preeclampsia changes the intrauterine environment of the fetus, and the fetus has to adapt to this kind of unfavorable environment. Consequences of prolonged um, uteroplacental hypoperfusion include fetal growth restriction, oligohydramnios, placental abruption, and intrauterine fetal demise. In addition, many of the effect, the neonatal effects of preeclampsia are secondary to prematurity. Um, several epidemiologic studies report an association with moms that have preeclampsia with severe features and excess bronchopulmonary dysplasia in the neonate. We think that preeclampsia may leave a persistent defect in the pulmonary circulation in the offspring, which predisposes to kind of this exaggerated hypoxic pulmonary hypertension that is present during childhood and may persist and lead to premature cardiovascular disease in adulthood. In addition, we know that um, infants born, born to moms with preeclampsia with severe features have this bone marrow suppression, um, which can be evidenced by neonatal thrombocytopenia. The next step is understanding the guidelines for management of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And the five key elements um, include recognizing the symptoms and diagnosis of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, immediate blood pressure control, seizure prophylaxis, understanding whether the patient can be managed as an inpatient versus an outpatient, delivery or expectant management will depend on the timing of the diagnosis and the severity of the disease, and postpartum surveillance. And as you are all familiar with the laboratory and radiologic evaluation of preeclampsia, I've just included this sort of as a guideline, um, but we want to look at a complete blood count. Specifically, we're looking for signs of hemoconcentration. We're looking at for evidence of thrombocytopenia. Basic metabolic panel, we want to look for electrolyte abnormalities as well as renal dysfunction. A hepatic panel to look at, the, at AST and ALT. Also looking at a total bilirubin as evidence of hemolysis a lactate dehydrogenase, again, to look for evidence of hemolysis, uric acid as a marker for renal dysfunction, urine protein creatinine ratio, and in patients with um, right upper quadrant pain or epigastric pain or shortness of breath, when the differential is still very broad, consider adding an amylase, lipase, ammonia, and even a BNP. 
Something that we always do when patients come in that are diagnosed with preeclampsia is obtain a fetal ultrasound to look at the growth of the fetus. Again, we know that these pregnancies are commonly affected by fetal growth restriction and often have abnormalities in the umbilical artery dopplers. A chest x-ray, just in case if the patient has shortness of breath. Um, an echocardiogram, if you're looking for um, potential cardiogenic versus non-cardiogenic causes of pulmonary edema. And, specific, and additionally, a peripheral blood smear, especially if a patient is coming in with profound thrombocytopenia and you want to um, exclude something like your thrombotic microangiopathies. So that's when we always engage our hematology um, consultants to look at a peripheral blood smear. So our response to hypertensive emergency should be immediate to obtain adequate blood pressure control, seizure prophylaxis and management, delivery versus expectant management, again, will depend on the gestational age at the time of presentation, the stability of the patient and the stability of the fetus, whether or not there's time to administer antenatal corticosteroids, and the gestational age, again, if prior to 34 weeks, our objective is absolutely to give steroids and postpartum surveillance. Our threshold for treatment and what we would consider an hypertensive emergency in pregnancy or postpartum is going to be a systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 160 or a diastolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 110. So if a patient has a new, presents with an elevated blood pressure, our, the recommendation is to repeat the blood pressure within 15 minutes. And if the blood pressure remains severe, to treat it immediately. And the next slide will go over some of the most common IV and oral antihypertensives that we would use in what we would consider to be a hypertensive emergency. But the most important point to get across is that you do not want to wait to treat these patients. For instance, on our labor and delivery unit, we have a triage system, um, depending on the acuity of what the patient is presenting with. And anybody that presents with a, with a blood pressure greater than or equal to 160 over 110 um, is considered a MIFT-1, and that goes to every provider on the floor and should be seen by the attending physician within 10 minutes of presentation. And the most other important thing to note is that this hypertensive emergency and indication for treatment applies to all diagnoses of hypertension. Even if a patient carries a diagnosis of chronic hypertension and they present with these blood pressures, it warrants immediate attention and treatment. So I provide this for you as a reference. I certainly won't go through every single thing, but the most common medications that we're using are going to be IV labetalol. IV hydralazine, and PO nifedipine for patients that were unable to get um, immediate um, IV access. And that's going to be the immediate release nifedipine. We generally use 10 milligrams, and that's an incredibly effective medication to reduce the blood pressure pretty rapidly. Um, my sort of go-to is I commonly start with hydralazine, um, especially if a patient has a more elevated diastolic blood pressure. Um, then that is, and commonly our patients are on I are on oral labetalol and oral nifedipine extended release. So I tend to start with IV hydralazine. Um, there are particular algorithms that we do follow, um, and I'll show that on the next slide. It's just one of the things about hydralazine is that we often maximize our therapy pretty quickly by um, giving you know twenty to twenty five milligrams. Um, up front. So we usually do 10 milligrams and we repeat that at least twice. Um, and then you have to go to another agent. And that's when we often go to IV labetalol or pionifedipine if they are not responding or have a contraindication to labetalol if their heart rate is um, on the lower side. So this is um, published by, um, again, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Um, and it just provides an algorithm in terms of starting with one agent, really there's no rule that you have to start with IV labetalol versus IV hydralazine and how frequently you can um, redose that medication, the maximum dose, um, and when to move to an alternative agent. And I think one of the things for um, critical care providers to know is that once we have maximized our therapy, once we've gone through the algorithm with labetalol and hydralazine, then we're starting to think of um, I. Um, an infusion of antihypertensives that we need, whether it's cardine or clavidipine. And often that's when we require your help. Um, on our labor and delivery um, here at University of Maryland, we are able to have patients on the floor with um, an antihypertensive infusions such as cardine or clavidipine. 
um, especially if those patients are laboring. Um, but just as you would imagine, the um, amount of care that is required, both nursing and from clinicians, can be um, difficult um, on labor and delivery. Um, and then once you've achieved adequate blood pressure control, what is the, um, how often should we be checking blood pressures? Our goal for these patients is honestly less than 160 and less than 110, even if they are in the 140s to 150s, um, that's an improvement. Um, we try not to drop their blood pressures into the 1-teens, 1-20s, into totally normal tension um, because oftentimes the fetus, especially a growth-restricted fetus, is um, used to much higher blood pressures. So we want to maintain that um, uteroplacental perfusion um, and prevent any um, decelerations from dropping their blood pressures too low. So the next step, once we have, or simultaneously while we're obtaining blood pressure control, um, would be the use of magnesium sulfate for seizure prophylaxis or treatment of eclampsia. So magnesium sulfate should be used as in, should be used in all cases of severe um, hypertension, again, regardless of classification. It doesn't matter if the patient has a known chronic hypertension. If they meet the threshold of greater than 160 over 110, then we would use magnesium sulfate. It's used in HELP syndrome, which we'll discuss um, a little bit later, but is not always associated with severe range blood pressures, certainly for the treatment of eclampsia. And there's really no consensus regarding the use of magnesium sulfate in the setting of preeclampsia without severe features or gestational hypertension, and that decision should be individualized. In um, a study that looked at the number needed to treat to prevent one, or one um, seizure, in patients that have preeclampsia with severe features but are asymptomatic, you would need to treat 129 patients with uh, magnesium sulfate to prevent one seizure. But in symptomatic patients with preeclampsia with severe features, you would only need to treat 36 patients with magnesium sulfate to prevent one seizure. Magnesium sulfate primarily acts as a CNS depressant and improves flow to the central nervous system via small vasodilation. Um, we use a loading dose of four to six grams IV given over 30 minutes, and then we use a maintenance dose of two grams per hour IV. In a patient that you're unable to get IV access or they've lost their access and they have an eclamptic seizure and you have to treat them, the dose intramuscularly is 10 grams. Um, and at our institution, it comes in two gram vials. So unfortunately, you are giving multiple injections to obtain that 10 gram dose. Um, the therapeutic window um, is 4.8 to 9.6 milligrams per deciliter. But I always tell um, clinicians, just remember 4.8 and 8.4. The numbers are um, inter just reversible, and that's how you know that you're within your therapeutic window. And it's also important to note specifically for patients that may require emergent cesarean delivery or a general anesthesia that the magnesium sulfate does prolong the duration of non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. So you may come across um, an anesthesiologist at an institution that asks to pause the magnesium, especially if you're moving towards delivery and you need general anesthesia. But the half-life of magnesium sulfate is approximately five hours. So the likelihood that you've reduced the magnesium sulfate um, at the time to have any beneficial effect from an anesthetic standpoint is really minimal. And you've now only increased your patient's risk of seizure. So the re recommendation is to continue magnesium sulfate through delivery and at least for approximately 24 hours after delivery or until you have adequate blood pressure control. In the MAGPI study, which was one of the first studies that looked at magnesium sulfate for the, for the prevention of um, eclampsia, it was a randomized placebo-controlled trial with approximately 10,000 participants. Two-thirds were from developing nations. Um, the seizure rate was reduced overall by more than half with the treatment of magnesium sulfate. And in a subsequent systematic review that included the MAGPIE trial and five other studies, um, magnesium sulfate compared with placebo more than halved the risk of eclampsia, reduced the risk of placental abruption, and reduced the risk of maternal mortality. And for those that will be using magnesium and using high doses, um, 
you want to know kind of at what levels do you obtain uh, magnesium toxicity. So one of the things that we do on our labor and delivery is we do um, a physical exam every two hours for every patient that's on magnesium. And we're evaluating their deep tendon reflexes, doing a, a good respiratory exam, making sure they're not developing any pulmonary edema. But we know that there's a loss of deep tendon reflexes around nine milligrams per deciliter, respiratory depression at 12, and cardiac arrest at 30. Um, for other um, kind of units that are not as comfortable dealing with high doses of magnesium, oftentimes our suggestion um, is to get a magnesium level every four to six hours. And especially in patients who have impaired renal function, they may be oliguric or just have decreased urine output, then a magnesium level is always really important to follow as you're trying to attain that therapeutic window, but prevent toxicity. And then always knowing your um, Antidotes, you want to use calcium chloride or calcium gluconate um, should you be concerned about magnesium toxicity. And I always like to tell clinicians that if you ever arrive to a, um, a, a maternal cardiac arrest, you always want to look at what infusions are running. If magnesium is running, always stop magnesium and always give um, calcium. So how do we decide which patients that we are going to deliver versus those that we can continue to keep pregnant? Um, we do have absolute indications for immediate delivery in preeclampsia with severe features, and those include uncontrolled severe range blood pressures refractory to antihypertensive therapy. These are often the patients that are maximized on at least two oral antihypertensives and are now requiring IV push dose back-to-back -back, or now requiring IV cardine or clavidipine. Patients with a persistent headache refractory to treatment, again, that is we're thinking that they're having kind of this vasospasm of their cerebral vessels. Um, and in these patients, we've always gotten some sort of imaging, make sure we're ruling out any alternative um, causes such as a hemorrhagic, ischemic stroke, um, a posterior cerebral dural, uh, dural sinus venous thrombosis. Um, Epigastric or right upper quadrant pain, unresponsive to analgesics. Again, these patients are often evaluated with a right upper quadrant ultrasound to make sure we're not missing a subcapsular hematoma before we proceed with delivery. Uh, visual disturbances, motor deficits or altered sensorium. Stroke, myocardial infarction, HELP syndrome, new or worsening renal dysfunction, pulmonary edema, eclampsia, and placental abruption. There are some fetal indications for immediate delivery. Um, that's going to include abnormal fetal testing, so whether they have an abnormal fetal heart rate tracing, um, if the patient's undergoing a biophysical profile, if that's not reassuring. Uh, fetal death, certainly there would be no indication to prolong the pregnancy in that circumstance. Or a fetus with the expectation that they're not going to survive. Or a diagnosis of preeclampsia at a pre-viable gestational age. Um, so a fetus that may not have an, um, may not be expected to survive. So if you're thinking of like a trisomy 13 pregnancy, again, we know there's a strong association with preeclampsia. In that pregnancy, you would not um, choose expectant management. Um, and then as we discussed that these pregnancies are commonly affected by fetal growth restriction. So in those patients, if there are abnormal uterine artery Doppler, or, sorry, umbilical artery Dopplers with reversed end diastolic flow, that's an absolute indication from a fetal perspective for delivery. To date, there are no interventions that have been proven unequivocally to um, eliminate the risk of preeclampsia. But we do know that low-dose aspirin is an effective tool for lowering a patient's risk of developing preeclampsia with severe features at an earlier gestational age, such as prior to 32 weeks gestation, and reducing the risk of fetal growth restriction. So investigators hypothesize that there's an imbalance in uh, prostacycline and thromboxane A2 metabolism involved in the pathogenesis of preeclampsia. And that led to the initial studies of looking at aspirin for the prevention because it has preferential inhibition of thromboxane A2 at lower doses. In 2017, the United States Preventative Services Task Force reviewed evidence and updated their recommendations on screening for preeclampsia, 
And they did find that there's adequate evidence that low-dose preeclampsia, anywhere from 60 to 150 milligrams, in women that have an increased risk based on their risk factors, um, that aspirin did reduce their risk of preeclampsia with severe features, fetal growth restriction, and preterm birth. Um, and in clinical trials, low-dose aspirin reduces the risk of preeclampsia with severe features by approximately 24%, uh, preterm birth by 14%, and fetal growth restriction by 20%. So the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine has adopted this recommendation for the um, use of aspirin as a preventative measure for preeclampsia. Aspirin should not be used in patients that have um, aspirin allergies or prior adverse um, effects from its use, those with aspirin-sensitive asthma or a history of gastrointestinal bleeding. And I've included the risk factors that we talked about um, previously on the left, that if a patient has one high-risk um, uh, risk level, then we would use choose aspirin, or if they have two of the moderate. Um, I will say that there are very few patients that I see that I don't recommend aspirin, just limited, given the limited um, side effect profile and overall potential benefit. Um, I just wanted to put one slide in here about postpartum preeclampsia because I know that there are probably some ED physicians, um, critical care providers in the audience, and so the um, education and the recognition of preeclampsia, um, we are trying to improve um, so that patients have prompt identification um, and treatment with blood pressure control as well as with a magnesium sulfate should it be indicated. A vast majority of the leading causes of pregnancy-related deaths, depending on the cause, occur while pregnant or within 42 days following the end of pregnancy. Most deaths from hemorrhage um, and hypertensive disorders occurred on the day of delivery or within one week of childbirth. On the other hand, the deaths from cardiovascular disease primarily occurred between 43 days and one year after the end of the um, after delivery. Um, late deaths from cardiovascular disease were disproportionately higher among Black women, as were as well as were early postpartum deaths from um, sepsis and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So they have, um, they've made signs to put up in the emergency room and to provide educational information for patients to notify the providers if they've recently delivered um, and signs to look out for when they go home. Headaches, visual changes, shortness of breath, an acute change in the swelling that they're having, bleeding, and oftentimes, um, patients have the ability to check their blood pressure at home, so we'll all tell, tell them red flags when they need to represent. Um, emergency department clinicians should focus on maternal resuscitation, immediate blood pressure management, and again, seizure no prophylaxis and notifying the OB team. Don't think anyone will ever fault you for initiating magnesium sulfate therapy if there's any concern at all for preeclampsia. It's always something that can be discontinued once we've excluded that as a, a diagnosis. I tried to incorporate sort of this is where I think the um, critical care providers would be um, pulled in when we have the complications from preeclampsia. So we know that Preeclampsia can affect every organ system, um, but neurologic complications include eclampsia, stroke, press, RVCS. Um, hematologic um, complications are HELP syndrome, thrombocytopenia, placental abruption, and DIC. So you may have a patient that presented with preeclampsia with severe features, had an acute placental abruption, immediately went into DIC, was taken to the operating room for delivery and um, requires ongoing resuscitation with their abdomen packed um, because of the coagulopathy that may end up with you. Patients, um, again, with HELP syndrome, with profound thrombocytopenia that, again, have profuse bleeding. Uh, cardiovascular complications include peripartum cardiomyopathy. Respiratory include pulmonary edema, ARDS, um, oftentimes, these patients can get like a flash pulmonary edema um, that can require emergent intubation and delivery. Renal and hepatic complications include, again, HELP syndrome, which we'll talk a little bit more about. Um, these subcapsular hematomas, in fact, we've had patients here that have had a ruptured subcapsular hematoma and acute kidney injury that may require renal replacement therapy. 
Um, so HELP uh, syndrome is defined as hemolysis, um, elevated liver enzymes, and thrombocytopenia. The hemolysis is often characterized by an abnormal peripheral smear, elevated bilirubin, so total bilirubin greater than 1.2, or an LDH greater than 600. The liver um, function tests need to be greater than twice the upper limit of normal, and thrombocytopenia requires a platelet count less than 100,000. HELP syndrome is characterized by hepatic endothelial disruption, uh, followed by platelet activation, aggregation, and consumption, ultimately resulting in this distal ischemia and hepatocyte death. Uh, this vasculopathy can be limited to a hepatic segment or acute diffusely throughout the liver. And oftentimes, this is why you see a higher elevation in the AST compared to the ALT because you have this direct hepatocyte injury. Um, when HELP syndrome affects larger vessels in the liver, you can get catastrophic outcomes such as hepatic infarction or subcapsular hematomas. And additional adverse outcomes with HELP may occur in the cardiopulmonary, uh, renal, and central nervous systems. Um, HELP syndrome may have an insidious and atypical onset, with up to 15% of patients lacking either hypertension or preeclampsia at the time, or, or proteinuria, sorry, at the time of pre presentation. In HELP syndrome, the main presenting symptoms are right upper quadrant pain and generalized malaise, which is present in about 90% of cases, and nausea vomiting, which is present in about 50% of cases. And HELP syndrome also, while more common than acute fatty liver disease of pregnancy or your thrombotic microangiopathies, those conditions should always be in the back of your mind. Um, and that you should consider because the treatment can be very different. For instance, acute fatty liver disease, similar to help, the treatment is delivery, but with a thrombotic microangiopathy such as TTP, that was not going to get better with delivery alone. Uh, eclampsia is defined as new onset, uh, tonic-clonic, focal, or multifocal seizures in the absence of other causative conditions such as epilepsy, cerebral arterial ischemia, intracranial hemorrhage, or drug use. The incidence in the United States is approximately 1 in 1,000 deliveries. And the mortality ranges anywhere from 1% in developed nations to as high as 15% in developing nations. Um, eclampsia may lead to severe maternal hypoxia, trauma, aspiration pneumonia, and impaired long-term memory and cognitive function. There are a significant portion of patients that develop eclampsia and they, without preceding hypertension, proteinuria, or alternative signs and symptoms, and their only presenting symptom is a seizure. And on the other hand, you do have patients where you have neurologic symptoms that precede eclampsia. So headache and visual disturbances are the most common prodromal symptoms. These neurologic symptoms um, reflect the development of cerebral edema and vasospasm of the cerebral and retinal vessels. Additional warning signs include nausea, vomiting, epigastric pain, and altered mental status. But the thought that preeclampsia has a natural linear um, progression from preeclampsia without severe features to preeclampsia with severe features and eclampsia is inaccurate. And patients, again, can just present with eclampsia and no additional warning signs. The treatment for eclampsia is magnesium sulfate. Um, if a patient is already on magnesium sulfate and has an eclamptic seizure, the, the recommendation is to rebolus your magnesium because they're most commonly subtherapeutic, and that's why they have now had a seizure. Um, Second-line agents include benzodiazepines and phenytoin, um, and I'll show you kind of an algorithm on the next slide. Or you may use those agents if uh, magnesium sulfate is contraindicated, so patients with myasthenia gravis or hypocalcemia, um, if they have moderate to severe renal dysfunction, cardiac ischemia, or myocarditis. And maternal stabilization takes precedent, precedent over delivery. An eclamptic seizure in itself is not an indication for an emergent cesarean delivery and could potentially be more harmful without stabilizing um, mom first. Eclampsia is an indication for delivery um, itself. It's one of those criteria for um, immediate delivery. 
but it doesn't necessarily have to be a cesarean delivery. If the patient is um, stable, you could consider a vaginal delivery. Um, so I just thought this was helpful algorithm for looking at the management of eclampsia and the use of magnesium sulfate. So again, our loading dose of magnesium sulfate is four to six grams. We use six grams here, IV. And then maintenance dose one to two grams per hour, trying to obtain, obtain that therapeutic window of 4.6 um, or 4.8 to 9.6. And then if those patients have breakthrough seizures on top of that, so redosing the magnesium, so giving another loading dose of four grams, making sure again, maternal stabilization, do you need to secure the airway, calling for consultants, so you're calling your neurocritical care colleagues, your intensive care units in order to transfer this patient to a higher level of care. And if they're continuing to seize through the magnesium sulfate using your second line agents, such as your benzodiazepines or um, phenytoin. And in these circumstances, once stabilized, preparing for delivery in order to um, minimize those long-term effects then on the baby and delivery of the placenta. In addition, these patients that develop eclampsia, uh, we would recommend for head imaging, certainly a CT, which can be done very rapidly, but then ultimately an MRI, you're looking for signs of cerebral edema, signs of press, RCVS um, as potential causes. Controlling blood pressure is the optimal intervention to prevent deaths due to stroke in women with preeclampsia. And the next two slides will just talk about the trends in stroke um, in the preg pregnancy-associated stroke related to preeclampsia. And one quick note on press. Um, so this um, slide just uh, shows two studies um, by Judy et al. and Martin et al. Uh, regarding the association of blood pressures um, that are greater than or equal to 160 systolic or greater than or equal to 110 diastolic in patients that developed a hemorrhagic stroke. And it just confirms the importance of blood pressure control at much lower thresholds than what we would consider in the non-pregnant population. So the combined total of these two studies compromised 54 patients who suffered preeclampsia-related stroke. Uh, there were two patients with systolic blood pressure between 155 and 160, and additional four patients who had a diastolic blood pressure of 105 to 110. So these six patients, or 11% of these patients, would not have been considered for um, immediate antihypertensive therapy according to the guidelines that we use today. It's possible that treatment at those little bit lower blood pressures um, could have prevented them from suffering a devastating hemorrhagic stroke. And there's very little risk associated with um, antihypertensive treatment at these blood pressure levels. And this data sort of emphasizes why we've chosen those cutoffs for blood pressure, um, which are, again, much different from the non-pregnant population because these patients are such high risk for developing stroke. In another patient uh, paper, sorry, by Wu et al., um, the authors looked at the temporal trends in pregnancy-associated stroke um, in women with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. 50% of pregnancy-associated strokes occur in the setting of preeclampsia or eclampsia, and 40% of pregnancy-associated strokes occurring during hospitalization for delivery, with the highest risk occurring 24 hours preceding delivery and two days postpartum. These authors examined a national cohort of, every, of over 4 million delivery hospitalizations in patients with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy between 2004 and 2014. They stratified patients based on subtype or subgroup of stroke into ischemic, hemorrhagic, or unspecified. And they also looked at hypertensive disorders um, of pregnancy subgroups, including chronic hypertension, gestational hypertension, and preeclampsia without severe features, and preeclampsia with severe features and eclampsia. So their results, again, they had over 4 million hospitalization um, episodes in patients with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And of these 4 million patients, 3,391, or 0.08% women, um, suffered a stroke. So in the time frame between 2004 to 2014, there was an increase in the number of hospitalizations for um, 
hypertensive disorders of pregnancy from 8.4 to 10.9% over the study period. But despite this increase in hospitalizations uh, for hypertensive disorders of pregnancy for delivery, there was actually a decrease in the proportion of hospital of, of preeclampsia associated stroke from 10 to 6 per 10,000 deliveries. Those patients that did suffer stroke were more likely to be older with a median age of 30, um, have a black ethnicity, and have medical comorbidities, including cardiovascular disease, cardiomyopathies, dyslipidemia, previous stroke, and sickle cell disease. Interestingly, the maternal mortality, postpartum hemorrhage, and stillbirth was higher in the group that had hemorrhagic strokes, and preterm birth was more occurred more frequently in patients with ischemic strokes. Um, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome has been described in non-pregnant patients um, related to renal failure, cytotoxic agents, and autoimmune conditions, and in pregnant patients with preeclampsia and eclampsia. Patients often present with a range of clinical findings, including altered mental status, confusion, headache, motor and sensory deficits, uh, visual field deficits, um, seizures, and memory loss. Um, the gold standard is MRI, where you see T1-weighted hypo-intense um, areas and T2-weighted hyper-intense areas in the bilateral parietal occipital lobes, in, in, indicating edema. Um, although involvement of other brain regions can occur with press, um, including the temporal lobes, the brainstem, cerebellum, basal ganglia, and frontal lobes. Um, the mechanism of press is related to brain capillary leak related to hypertension, fluid retention, and damage to the vascular endothelium. Um, you see these sudden elevations in blood pressure, which is able to overcome kind of our body's autoregulatory um, capacity, leading to abruption or uh, leading to um, abrupt dilation of the cerebral arterioles and hyperperfusion. This leads to kind of breakdown of that blood bank, blood brain barrier, kind of transudation of fluid, and petechial hemorrhage and, and edema. Uh, the treatment for press is prompt management of blood pressure control, neurologic surveillance, which is often done in an intensive care unit, and treatment of the cerebral edema. And then lastly, I just wanted to um, briefly discuss kind of the long-term implications on cardiovascular disease uh, for patients with preeclampsia. Uh, there is a well-defined association uh, between uh, patients that have preeclampsia and the risk of cardiovascular disease later in life, including hypertension, myocardial ischemia, congestive heart failure, cerebral vascular events, peripheral arterial disease, and cardiovascular mortality. There's also this graded um, association. So we know that patients that have more severe preeclampsia at an earlier gestational age, and those patients that have preeclampsia in recurrent pregnancies have a greater risk of cardiovascular disease later in life. Um, we, the mechanism that accounts for this increased risk um, is not well understood, but we believe has to do with endothelial dysfunction, which has been linked to atherosclerosis, and it persists in women with a history of preeclampsia many years after the effective pregnancy. So this is important for clinicians um, and just kind of highlights the need for improved preventative strategies to be considered in patients and among healthcare professionals. Um, it's not common that when um, patients later in life go to the doctor that they ask about pregnancy complications, potentially such as preeclampsia. But these patients may warrant long-term follow-up and lifestyle interventions uh, and modifications to reduce their cardiovascular risk later in life. And that is everything um, that I have for you today. Um, thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to answer any questions.